You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. And as I've been telling you for the past couple of weeks, we have a very special guest in the Her Money house today. I'm sitting in our studio on 9th Avenue at 45th Street across from Kathleen Murphy, the president of Fidelity Personal Investing. This is a Fidelity Investments company that provides retail brokerage, mutual funds, managed accounts, annuities, and other financial products to millions of individual investors. Kathy has been repeatedly on the list of the 50 most powerful women in American business, put out by Fortune magazine, one of the Wall Street top 50. I could go on and on and on. I just want to say I'm really glad you're here. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here and to talk about this really critical topic. Absolutely. And before we get into our subject at hand. I also just want to say, and it's it's from me, but also from the the listeners that we hear from on a regular basis. Thank you because you came in and you got um, behind this topic of this podcast and and um, through your support behind it, and it means the world to me, but also I know to our listeners. Well, Jean, I know you're making a difference in the lives of these women. As we're going to talk about, I'm sure, this uh, the topic of investing and saving will allow these women to really reach the dreams they have by taking full control of their financial future. So it's worth it because it will make a real difference for people. We hear from a lot of men who are getting something out of it, too. Absolutely. Just by the way. Yeah, absolutely. So how long have you been with Fidelity now? Eight years. Eight years. And yes. how has your role shifted? So it's broadened um, in terms of the range of businesses I cover. But I think more importantly than the role shifting, it's more about my focus expanding. And so, you know, I started at Fidelity uh, the first business day of 09 in the depths of the financial recession. And one of the first things we did was a, a survey with couples to see how well they were communicating about their financial issues, particularly in light of some of the impact that the markets were having on uh, on people's portfolios. And what we found was stunning uh, in terms of how um, how little women really got involved in those conversations as part of a couple. And so that really pretty quickly at Fidelity deepened my focus on trying to get more education and knowledge out there so that women who are completely capable of doing this, as you know, actually take the steps and do it. So we've come down the road eight years since then. How are we doing? Uh, you know, frankly, um, there's some puts and takes here. Um, I will tell you, we've done this couple survey every other year. Um, and I was expecting, you know, four years out from the recession, I'd see millennials in the workforce, you know, seeing what their parents went through, take much more control. Only 12% of millennial women in a relationship consider themselves a primary decision maker on their finances in the household. Now, that jumps up to a whopping 38% for baby boomers, 
but that's still not a lot. And when you say primary decision maker, does that have to be the sole decision no, maker? No, it means you're involved as opposed to completely delegate to your partner. That's astonishing. And it's frustrating because when I was younger, say 30 years ago, my dad died unexpectedly of a heart attack. My mom was left with six kids trying to figure out how to manage all this stuff. And they had that traditional division of duty. She focused on the budget and saving money. He focused on investing. 30 years later, not nearly enough has changed, despite the fact that women have made so many strides in the workforce. I expected the line in the sand to really start to move as women became stronger in terms of becoming breadwinners. I figured that not necessarily being the primary breadwinner, although many of us are now, but that once we were earning a significant amount of money in our own family, we would feel not only compelled to start taking care of it, but justified in beginning to participate. And and I don't see it happening nearly enough. I know. And the way I think about it is women have worked so hard to make so much progress and advancement in their careers, and they're working really hard to be successful. An important part of working is making money. And if you don't actually invest the money, you're not getting ahead of the game. And so, you know, you have to step back and say, well, why is that? And there, I think from, from my perspective, there's several reasons why these barriers and, frankly, stereotypes persist. And so we can talk more about that. But um, some of them are societal. Financial services is an industry that was developed by men for men. And I don't say that pejoratively. It's, and, and men didn't intentionally say we want to exclude women. No, they in just, fact, now they're putting a lot of money trying to be inclusive. Right. But, you know, when you look at the terms that financial services firms use, and we've gone through this ourselves, and so we've got to rewrite all of our – we've got to stop this and talk about this differently. But alpha, beta, quantitative analysis, it's not – you could never be accused of being warm and engaging. No. When people, normal people – including women, think about what they want to do with their money. It's about goals for their family. And so we have to reorient the whole financial services process about what does the client want and work our way back. And so, again, we've tried to tackle this ourselves in terms of how we talk about the process of investing, how to make sure that women know it's not hard. Taking the first step is the only hard part. You made my job very easy today by coming up for me with a list of five excuses yes. that women tell themselves to justify not investing. Right. And investing is the big hurdle. So number one on the list, and I've felt this way in my own life, I'm a great saver. Yes. Isn't that enough? No. So it's, it's important. It's a necessary first step. But if you're saving and not taking the step of investing, you're actually still losing money. Because if you're just putting that money in the bank with inflation versus the interest rate you get on your savings in a bank, you're actually losing money. And with the compounding effect of you know what your investments can make for you over time, if you saved $50 every month over the course of 30 years, that would turn into hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so you have to, you have to take that step of investing it, again, with the right, you know, with whatever... Uh, risks you're comfortable with, and people can help you decide that. But you have to take that next step of investing. How much should you leave in 
true safety in cash just in case? I mean, we hear the three to six months. That's a big hurdle for a lot of people to cross. Yeah, you know, we say, um, you know, about 5% um, should be in, you know, very liquid emergency savings, money you can get to right away. God forbid something happens. But you should have some emergency fund for sure. Okay. All right. Investing is hard. Is, is number two on the list. That's an excuse. Investing is hard and men are better at it than we are. Yeah. So there's, um, so there's two myths there. One, investing is not hard. I'll talk about that in a second. The second is, and I think this is surprising to women, women that actually do take the step of investing their money actually do better than men. And the reason they do better is, number one, women, generally speaking, of course, there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, women focus on long-term goals. Mm -hmm. And they invest according to the timeline of those goals. They don't generally tend to get in and out of the market, try and time the market, try and find the hot stock. They also have a very clear risk orientation in terms of how much risk they want to take with their investments. And then because they have this long-term set of goals, they have a longer time horizon in terms of set it and forget it. Let those investments ride over time. What we see a lot back in 09, those people that got out of the market when the market was tanking lost a ton of money. They should have had that long-term perspective that so many women do. So um, now, w- women that are listening may say, well, you know, that investing, I don't know how to do that. Investing is as easy as taking money in your 401k and deciding to put it in one or more mutual funds. It can be a target date mutual fund that just is is designed to take care of a person at your age. Correct. Right. So a target date fund basically says, what's your target date for retirement? You know, if you're 30 years old, maybe it's 30 years from now, and somebody in an investment company manages that money for you based on your life stage. So all you have to do is put the money in. It is allocated appropriately from a risk perspective, and you're making, generally speaking, over time, those investments will grow for you. What about somebody who would prefer to put their money into either index funds or ETFs? Is there a simple formula for how to break that money up to, again, achieve the appropriate level of risk for your age? Yeah. So in, um, so index funds basically track an index in the market without trying to beat the market. And so basically how much you should put in less risky forms of index funds versus more index funds that focus more on the stock market uh, really depends on your age. So that that target date fund perspective of, you know, if you're in your 30s, you should be taking more risk, have more of your money in the stock market, again, through mutual funds, because you've got a long time horizon to make that money work for you. As you get closer to retirement, you should get more conservative. So the answer on how much depends on how old you are and what your goals are. Okay. All right. As we're talking about people's age and their risk tolerance, I think let's just run through, because I know you've got some good guidelines for people who are at particular ages and what boxes do they need to check? So if you're in your 20s, if you're like my kid who just got his first job, what do you have to do? So what you should be thinking about when you get out of school and um, just starting to work is whether they offer 401k and what the company matches And at a minimum, invest as much as they match because that matching money is essentially free money. 
It's like getting a raise. And so you want to at least do that amount. If you can do more, what we recommend, you know, and we understand kids coming out, not kids, young adults coming out of college. I said kid. I know. I know. My son is sitting there going, uh. Um, That just shows you we're old. Coming out of college, you've got college debt. You may have credit card debt. So in general, we say try and save between 10 and 15% of your salary. However, if you're young, the, the second biggest thing to focus on is paying off the highest credit card debt you've got in terms of interest rate. Okay. Generally speaking, credit card debt is the worst kind of debt. Well before student loan right. debt. You can exactly. pay the student loans off over time. Right. All right. If you're in your 30s, what steps do you take? So in your 30s, life's getting you know a little more complicated. You might be saving for a house, a condo. You might be getting married. You might be having a kid, you know, children. And so um, you want to make sure at this point that you're saving that 10 to 15% in your 401k. If you're able to, open up an IRA and save some money outside of your 401k as well so you're growing your wealth beyond what the government limits how much you can do in a 401k. So if you can save more, you should. Where do health savings accounts fit into this hierarchy? So health savings accounts should be, um, you should think about that after your 401k because there's some advantages to health savings accounts if your employer offers them. You know, it's, it's a little more difficult right now to get them on an individual basis. You can, but a lot of employers are now starting to offer them as well. And so there's tax advantages to health savings accounts. Okay. Once we're mid-career, 40s, 50s? Yep. So, by the, you know, by the time you're in your 40s or 50s, you may have kids. Um, and therefore, at that point, uh, in addition to what you should be doing, you know, again, that 10 to 15 percent of your 401k, you probably have opened up a 529 for your kids, gotten life insurance. Those are things to consider. But within your 401k, which should be a primary source of your investments, you also should look at catch-up contributions when you turn 50. The, you know, you don't want to let the government off the hook on any advantage that they are supposed to give you. And so when you turn 50, you can actually contribute more to your 401k, and all of that is better from a tax perspective. And then, you know, as you approach your 50s, you also should start thinking about having conversations with your partner about when you want to retire do you have enough, et cetera? And see if you agree. Right, yeah. Right, yes. with a smile on my face, right. says my husband and I do not. Yes. Um, as you get closer and closer to retirement, do you find people starting to think about having different pots of money for tax purposes so that they have pots that they've already paid taxes on yes. versus those that money that's still lumped into the 401k? Yeah. So just before I answer that, I want to go back to your comment about, you know, if you agree. So as part of this couple survey, we we looked at couples at every life stage and couples in their 50s, generally speaking, had not had any conversations about when they plan to retire, where they plan to live in retirement. <laughs> None of those conversations. So you're very normal, better. Jean. Yeah. Feel, well, we talk about it. We oh, just okay, are not well, okay. necessarily in total agreement. Well, at agreement. least you're talking about it. So, and by the way, if you don't know where you're going to live or when you're going to stop working, it's hard to develop a financial plan. Yeah. yeah. But in any event, in terms of, you know, separate pots of money, yeah, at this point, your life has gotten more complicated. You need a full financial plan. Again, you want to make sure you're not giving the government money 
that could otherwise be yours. So which set of money should you draw from first? An issue when you get to 70 is you have to take money out of your IRA, the minimum required distribution, making sure you take that money for your expenses as opposed to taking it out of some other account that's not as preferable to you. So at this point, it is, I think, your life is complicated enough that you want a financial plan and you want to talk to somebody that knows the tax rules. You know, I I want to just come back to that for one second. Yes. I mean, when is it that you need a plan? Because I, I was struck, you and I have had conversations yeah. before about younger people and that they might not actually need a full-fledged planner. How do you know when you've crossed the line? I think it's about when your life gets more complicated and there's more people and things to consider. So if you're in your 20s, and I listen to, I shared this with Eugene, I listen to about 20 hours of customer calls every month as I'm driving to and from work. And, you know, so I smile when I hear the calls from somebody with a younger sounding voice that says, I just started working, I just got out of college, and my dad told me to call you and sign up for a 401k. So for that person, the the target date fund you talked about is all they need. They shouldn't be paying fees to get advice on more, they don't have a complicated life yet. But as you have kids, as you start buying life insurance, as you think about um, the pressures of taking care of your older parents that might have exhausted some of their uh, financial means, that's when you want to have a planner that says, all right, here's all my goals and issues, and how do I think about how to do this, um, how to do this so my, my money lasts as long as I do? There's tips for how to engage in that process in terms of what to do, what to ask about. Okay. We're going to come back to number four and five on the list of investing excuses, but I just want to point out that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments, and Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We deserve to live the lives we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Kathy Murphy, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, getting divorced, having a baby, starting a career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be back with Kathy Murphy of Fidelity. All right. Two more excuses that get in our way of doing the job that needs to be done. One is just procrastination. I'll get to it later. Right. So time is money. And I completely understand why um, you want to put it off. If you don't like, you know, the topic of finances and investing, it's easy to say, oh, I'll just do it later. But, you know, the longer you wait, the more money you're costing yourself. Because if you invest in your 20s, you will have as I said, hundreds of thousands of dollars more than if you wait till your 30s or 40s. And so the the money you put in early works really, really hard for you. So that's number one. And in terms of time, the basics of investing are not complicated. You do a great job of breaking this down and helping people with this. The financial services industry, you know, again, not because they're intentionally trying to, but didn't make it easy to just help people with the process of investing. It's not hard. Take the time to just understand the basics and get started. And as I said, once women get started, they actually do better than men. So you can do it. You're smart enough. Just take the time. And how much do we need to be kicking in every year in order to, 
you know, over the long term in order to get where we need to go by retirement? So as I said, we um, our rule of thumb is if you can put away from an investment perspective 10 to 15 percent of your annual compensation, and that includes the company's 401k match, so it doesn't have to be all from your paycheck, mm-hmm. that will really put you on solid footing by the time you're ready to retire. Okay. The final one, and we've talked about this a little, is that I don't have enough money for a professional to want to work with me. Yeah. So a couple things in that regard. Yes, you do. There are advisors that will only take people with X amount of money, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars or more. Um, But there's companies like Fidelity whose purpose is to help all Americans save for their retirement. And we also make available lots of materials, tools on our website. You can call us, you can visit us. But And we're not the only company like that. There's other companies like that that want to help all Americans. So that's number one. It, it's not about how much money you have. It's just about getting started. If you, whether you come to Fidelity or go to another financial services provider. It's important, though, to treat this seriously and not be intimidated by the people you're talking to. So what do I mean by that? When any of us go and purchase something like a car, Mm -hmm. we do our homework. We're not afraid to ask the car salesman how much the car costs, et cetera. And we're intimidated to ask those same questions when it's a lot more money and it's our future. So it's important to say to uh, any financial advisor, how much is this going to cost me? How much do you make by selling me these products? Do you make different amounts of money based on what you're selling me? Ask very plain English questions to make sure that you're not getting taken advantage of. And if you're not understanding the answers? Then don't take that advisor. If it's not clear and transparent, if you can't understand what they're charging you, you shouldn't give your money to that person. All right. Let's switch gears a bit. Yeah. You and I have talked about this before, and I don't think we've ever talked about it on the on the program. But in, in addition to needing to invest our money, I think, and I know you think, working in finance and in particular as a financial advisor is a great career path oh for gosh. women. Yes, 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 yes. So why aren't more women doing it? So I think this is one of those issues, um, you know, that starts when we're young. So there's a lot of research that shows when girls are in grammar school, they think they're, they are every bit as capable on things like math and science as boys. By the time they get into high school, that number is cut in half. It's not that their brain shrunk by the time from fourth grade to ninth grade. And then um, even though uh, 60% of college graduates are women, only 18% of engineering and math majors are women. And so there's something about the topic of finance, math, you know, science that is intimidating to women somehow or they lack confidence. So that's one issue. The second is um, the the financial services industry is has been dominated by men. Now, we're trying to change that. I report to the CEO of, the, uh, of my company as a woman. We've got an initiative to actually get more women into financial services. Whether you're a financial planner, we've got lots of those across the country, or you like serving people. So it's interesting. There's some people that want to provide great customer service as opposed to financial planning, Mm -hmm. and there's room for both of those in the financial services world. So think a little bit more broadly, I would say, about the category of financial services. Well, I actually think of financial planners as being in the service business. Well, of course they are. You know, I mean, I think, and and I don't 
think of it as a numbers-centric yeah. job. I think it's a job where you listen and you use your communication skills and you help people chart out a plan for their life. It's more like being a therapist. That's right. At Fidelity, we want a lot more women to be providing that kind of service to our clients, not because it's politically correct, but because we benefit from both the diversity of perspective and we benefit from the value that women bring to this profession. And so I've got a very strong passion and commitment to increasing the ranks of women at Fidelity and, you know, more broadly, getting girls to feel more confident about the topic of math. And so where should all of our listeners send their resumes? Oh, to, well, send it to, uh, let's see, <laughs> you can, to fidelity.com. And we'll, you, they'll get to me, believe me. <laughs> Kathy Murphy, thank you so much. Thanks for coming in to our studio on this incredibly raining day. Oh, it's been delightful. It's great to see you. And we are back in the studio. Kelly is joining me now. You've taken Kathy's seat in our studio for two. I am honored to have taken <laughs> Kathy's seat. It was really cool listening to both of you go back and forth. She's pretty incredible. Both of you are. It's a great pairing. And I I can't thank Fidelity enough for their continued support for our show. Yeah. Yeah. No. Very, very grateful. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Okay, enough of a love fest. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so questions. Uh, I have a two-part question for our first question, and I loved both, so you're going to let me have them. We're going to do both. Okay. It was from Yur, and I'm hoping I, I pronounce that correctly. On Facebook, she writes, "Hi, Jean. I love your podcast. Thank I'm you. 31 and don't know very much about money, but your show makes me more curious. So thank you." I have two questions. The first, how do I talk about money slash finances with my girlfriends and get them curious about money as well? My friends are a few years younger, but we are all about the same phase in our lives. No longer making financial mistakes, but not necessarily making conscious financial decisions about the future either. I'm 100% with you about women needing to talk more about money, but finances just don't come up that much in my group. I totally get it. So I would suggest two things. Number one, just share today's podcast send this around to them and just send a link and tell them to download it and then discuss. But the other is an old reporter's trick, and it's the same one that I use when trying to engage older parents in a discussion about money, and that's that you give a little to get a little. So start with a personal story. Start with something that you did. And then because you've given some personal information, it's okay for you to ask them if they've ever done this or if they've ever thought about doing this. So maybe you checked your credit report. Maybe you got a new um, credit card because you got a whole boatload of miles for switching to this credit card. Maybe you just got a health insurance plan, or maybe you picked a mutual fund, or maybe you read a story in, it doesn't have to be all that deeply personal. It could just be a story in the newspaper that spoke to you for some reason. So talk about that. Talk about it in a way where it's very clear that it had an impact on you personally, share, and then ask. And it works. It does work. And I think I'm in the same place you are. And I'm also a fan of self-deprecating humor. So I often <laughs> open with my mistakes of what I do wrong. 
make a joke about it, throw myself under the bus, if you will. And I find that it really does open people up and to say me too. And we learned that from Brene Brown, how important it is to normalize you know, our mistakes. And it, it just opens up. Well, the... you hear me do it on the show all the time. Absolutely. I mean, I because we've all made these mistakes. And if mm-hmm. we didn't make these mistakes, I think we wouldn't feel as um, compelled maybe to mm-hmm. bring other women along. You know, I, I don't want other women to make the mistakes that I made. And so I'm talking about mine. Yep. So that's a great question. And then she has a second one as well. So my husband and I are looking into buying a second home as an investment. We are looking at a neighboring town that just built a university about 10 years ago. We don't know anything about real estate besides buying our own home. Any tips or suggestions? Well, on the surface, university towns are great places to buy investment real estate in general, as long as they've got a pretty active population of students who live on campus and slightly off campus. But you really want to get the lay of the land there as far as that is concerned. I'd say spend a decent amount of time looking not just at what properties are selling for, but what properties are renting for. And understand that if you're going to manage this property yourself and you're going to have an audience of college students, a rotating crop of college students as tenants, there's going to be a considerable amount of maintenance that you're probably going (laughs) to have to deal with. You may want to think about whether or not you want to rent to students or whether you'd prefer to rent to professors, young families who might be affiliated with the university in some other way. I just say take it slowly. Um, I think you're on to something. I, I know I grew up in university towns. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and then Bloomington, Indiana. And last winter was with my mother and my best friend from junior high and her mother in Florida. We sat down and we had dinner. And her mother has moved full time to Florida, but she's still living on the rental properties that she and her husband amassed in Bloomington, Indiana for many years. So I know it can be an excellent way to retire. Thank you, Year, for both of your questions and Thank for listening. You. Our next is from Sandy. She sent us an email. Where can I go to find out my true FICO score? Is it free? My bank doesn't offer it, and neither does the one credit card that I have. So you can go to myfico.com, and you will get a FICO score. Your FICO score is not free. You have to pay for it. And I wonder if you truly need it at this point. You can get free credit scores, whether they are um, experience scores, transunion scores, Equifax scores, Vantage scores, which was a score developed to compete with the FICO scoring model, at any number of websites. And the most important thing about the score is not the absolute number, although you do want to see it in a good to excellent range, meaning 720 to 760 for good, 760 and up for excellent, but the trajectory. If you are thinking that you're going to want to qualify to rent a to buy a home or buy a car at the best interest rates going, you're going to want to make sure that if your score isn't good now, it's getting better in the future. And we talk about how to do that all the time. It is pay your bills on time, make sure you're not using more than 10 to 30% of your available credit, don't shop for credit you don't need, don't close cards that you're not using, 
and make sure that you try to maintain a mix of forms of credit, and that's it. Don't try to micromanage this. It's like numbers on the scale. It will drive you crazy. (laughs) Combining yours question and Sandy's, I haven't, I can't remember the last time I checked my credit score, which means it's time to check my credit score. So I'm going to go check my credit score. More important than checking your credit score, pull your credit report. Mm. Pull your credit report. We are in tax season now. We're getting lots and lots of reports of people who are falling victim to identity theft because there are a lot of people out there who are trying to grab your tax refund before you grab it yourself. So if you haven't filed, file. Thanks, Jean. And if you'd like to send us a question, you can drop us a note on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on jeanchatsky.com. Thank you. And since we spent all show talking about investing for the future, let's wrap it up with a discussion of retirement. What do you think about when you think about retirement? I mean, maybe you think about a beach or golf or skiing, but What about when you're not relaxing? Do you see yourself continuing to work? About three quarters of people in the 50 plus range say absolutely. And nearly half of current retirees say the same. Now, some people will work because they want to. Some will work because they have to. But no matter why you venture in, the data seems to indicate it'll be good for your health. Researchers from the University of Miami found that among people age 65 plus, those who are still in the workforce were more likely to report good, very good, or excellent health than those who were unemployed or retired. And a difference study from Oregon State University found that those people who continued to work past age 65 had an 11 percent lower chance of death from all causes. As for the other perks, working can keep you mentally sharp, reduce isolation, which according to AgeWave is as bad for your health as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, boost your identity, and of course, give that retirement account of yours more time to grow. A big thank you for joining us today. Thanks to Kathy Murphy from Fidelity for coming into the studio for a great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes and leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We'd also like to once again thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when we will be talking with one of my favorite guests, Dr. Pepper Schwartz. I had a dog named Dr. Pepper once. I don't know that I ever told you that. But we will have Pepper Schwartz on the show. You know her from the show Married at First Sight. She's also the AARP's ambassador for love and relationships. We'll also answer your questions. And, of course, we'll have a great way for you to thrive. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.